Good morning, everyone. Hi, my name is Stephen. I have the privilege of serving on staff here at All Souls. It's good to see you. Have you guys been enjoying the glorious sunshine of the last few days? Yes. Yes, I, uh, I enjoyed it a whole lot. Five hours yesterday sitting watching a baseball, or well, two baseball games, and my face uh, has to show for it. So uh, a number of people are like, you got some sun. I'm like, I got a lot of sun. It was great. Uh, well, uh, we are continuing our Lenten series on prayer, and we're going to jump right into our scripture reading this morning. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app, or if you're watching online, you got the Bible tab up there, somewhere on there. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. And this comes from a letter that Paul wrote to a church plant in the Greek city of Thessaloniki. And toward the tail end of the letter, he, he has this line that always, you know, kind of seems a bit of a mystery to me. Um, and he's giving this kind of bullet point instruction, kind of this summary sentence about what it is that he wants them to know as they apprentice themselves to Jesus in the life ahead. And he writes this, Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Skipping down to verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. And now, almighty God, as a potter fashions a vessel from the earth, so we ask that you would shape us by the Spirit and by the hearing of your word, that we may pray as continually as we breathe, and so that out of us, the life of the kingdom may flow effortlessly. God, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What does the life of faith all come down to? Moving through life from a posture of constant, joyful, thankful prayer. Still, this idea of praying without ceasing. That's the line that's always seemed a little bit of a mystery to me. Like, how can you pray without ceasing? Seems a little bit of a tall order. Uh, but you gotta know this isn't just like some sort of throwaway line that Paul sticks at the end of a, you know, some random letter of his. In one way or another, this is how Paul described his own life of prayer. For him, this is not some formula. This is a lived reality a posture toward life, a habit of his heart. And so he actually gives this advice to churches 12 different times, and he uses a different way of describing it every single time. Uh, here's just a few of those 12 occasions when he mentions it. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers 
We have not ceased to pray for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. We pray most earnestly day and night. We pray always for you. I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. Paul, when he tells these young churches to pray, it's always in this fashion of being constant in prayer. He tells the Romans, be constant in prayer. And he tells the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And so no matter how you look at it, Paul is encouraging those who apprentice themselves to Jesus to live from this place of joyful, grateful thanks in constant prayer. Okay, so what does that mean? Pray without ceasing. Never stop praying. Does it mean quit your job and you know, live as a monk? Uh, forsake your family, burn your iPhone in your yard, and then just you know, kind of like wander around like some mystical poet, uh, never eating, never sleeping, and then die? Like, is that the end game here? Is that what Paul is after? Or is he saying something else? Well, I mean, on the one hand, it's hyperbole, right? The idea is to pray and pray a lot. But I imagine when we take a look at this, this list uh, of all the times that Paul says this, we, we, can, we can, if you're anything like me, this can feel like a bit of a weight on you, like just one more way that I don't measure up. I mean, your life is already full of stuff. You've got you know, things to do that are important. And now it's just like piling on one more burden. I mean, what happened to a couple weeks ago? Pray as you can, right? And now it's pray constantly? I mean, come on. But to borrow a word picture from one of the wise voices of the faith, we only see this as a burden. Constant prayer will only be a burden as wings burden the bird in flight. On another level, what Paul is calling us to is a kind of prayer that is way more relational than it is functional. It's an invitation to kind of take on Jesus' mental map of reality in which the Father's nearness is always present to us so that we can live how we were meant to, moving through life in conscious awareness of God's presence. And maybe more to the point, it's about thinking of prayer from the place of relationship, from being in community with God than it is about your doing something or more to the point about asking God to do something for you. This is a prayer about being, not about doing. And I think for a lot of us, when we imagine prayer, it's hard to kind of move past this idea of asking God for things. And to be sure, that is certainly part of prayer, but it's only a thin slice of the whole. Paul is describing prayer that is a kind of whole life orientation to God. I love how Robert Mulholland describes it. He says, prayer is an established posture of relationship with God that becomes the context within which we experience all of the events and relationships of our lives. In other words, prayer is a way of participating with God in every aspect of life. It's a way of moving through life knowing that God is as near to you as your next breath. And so what Paul is getting at, his, his end goal for our prayer life is this whole life orientation toward God all day long, from the moment we wake up and have our coffee, 
or we start checking emails, or you know, get ready for work, or for school, or whatever you know, your life is, going to baseball practice, or folding laundry, or playing the piano, having a glass of wine before you go to bed at night, or reading a bedtime story to a small child, you know, whatever your thing is until the moment that you go to bed. Living each moment in awareness that God is near to you. And there's all sorts of ways to describe this life. Here, Paul calls it praying continuously. In Galatians, he calls it walking in step with the Spirit. And the life that flows out of that, walking in step with the Spirit, is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I mean, who doesn't want more of that, right? But Jesus gives another image of that, and it's of branches clinging to and drawing life from the vine. He goes on to say that if you don't make abiding this center point of your life, then you're not going to produce any kind of fruit at all. In John 15, when he's describing this, Jesus says it comes from this place, the fruit of this orientation to God, and it's first marked by a life of joy, this deep pervasive, down kind of on the soul level, joy is this byproduct of a life that is connected to God. So how do we learn this kind of posture of praying always? Well, like with most things, you know, prayer is more of a practice than a theory. And so we're going to focus on two this morning. Uh, the, the first is best known as practicing the presence of God. It's kind of more on the, the inward sort of uh, scale of prayer. It's a conversational mode with God about what you are doing all throughout your day. And the other is called fixed hour prayer, which is on the other end, it's more deliberate, kind of carving out time throughout the day to be with others, to center the mind on God and the heart and the soul on God. Now, if you were to kind of plot out our prayer life on a continuum where you've got flexible on the one end and formal on the other, uh, kind of on the flexible end of things, you'd have these traditions that are more like, you know, describing prayer as things that are, you know, free-flowing and spontaneous, uh, words like uh, emotive, uh, raw, kind of authentic, personal, right? Uh, those of you who grew up in more evangelical spaces or uh, in black church traditions, like you know this kind of prayer. It's the kind of prayer that just pours out of people, people whose lives are marked deeply by God. They just pray, and they pray effortlessly, and they pray beautifully. But on the other end of the axis, you've got traditions that emphasize kind of more the, the structured, uh, formal aspects. Prayer is often, you know, planned and, and reflective. The language is polished. It tends to be developed within a tradition, within, uh, written with a kind of a community in mind. And then in the vertical space, you've got prayer that is more active, things that you do with others. It's more outward facing. And then prayer on the other end that is more quiet and inward and reflective. And no matter where you are, like we all kind of gravitate somewhere on this map. We all have kind of a a natural disposition toward prayer that's somewhere on here. It might be kind of fun to talk with your community group about where you land. And the thing is, these poles are often pitted against each other. as like one is the right way to pray, and those other people don't really know what they're doing. 
But in reality, we need both. We need, we need all of it. I grew up in a family that tended to be a little bit more formal when we prayed, not in the sense of like praying written prayers, but in terms of praying uh, things that were memorized. You know, prayer was something that we did in our family a certain way. Eyes closed, hands folded, head bowed, no peeking. And no distractions at all. Um, I remember the very first prayer that my parents taught me when, and some of you may know this as well. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord. Really kind of a freaky prayer, like when you, when you think about it. Night, kid. Hope you don't die. If you do, I hope God takes your soul. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Bedtime was a source of anxiety for me, as you can imagine. All that is to say, when I came back to faith, prayer was tough. Um, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know how to, you know, kind of look beyond my own, like, narrow range of emotions and my own needs. But I joined up with a campus ministry when I was in college called InterVarsity, and it was there that I kind of entered into an a, a approach toward prayer that was more on the kind of spontaneous, free-flowing, and intimate side of the equation. That was kind of like one of my first schools of prayer. And then when I was after college, I, I discovered the liturgical tradition. Uh, through the Book of Common Prayer and the Anglican Church. And suddenly there was this whole new way of praying that opened up to me using words that were ancient and yet expressed a, a broader range of emotions than I had, had known. And I found that through writing my prayers, it was a way that kind of connected with my own mind, my own way of thinking. It's much easier for me to focus when I'm writing down uh, my, my, my thoughts as a kind of a conversation with God about what he is concerned about and about what I am concerned about and about how we kind of walk in that together. And it was kind of like in, in discovering that, a light bulb went off for me and I started kind of going throughout the events of my day prayerfully in conversation with God. Before too long, it began to you know, kind of seep into my, my everyday actions. I, I was a teacher at the time and so it'd be like when I was teaching a class or when I was grading papers or when I was dealing with like a really difficult student, like, dear Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on this kid that I want to strangle right now. It was this moment of just kind of bringing them, whatever it was, whatever I was doing, you know, hanging with friends, playing basketball at the park, what, whatever it was, bringing that in, allowing God to be present or acknowledging God's presence in that moment. And then when I was in seminary, uh, a number of years after seminary actually, and a number of years after marriage, I did, learned of the contemplative tradition and I, I heard a story of a man named Nicholas Herman. He spent the early uh, parts of his life in the French military until a, a terrible injury left him partially paralyzed and uh, in a state of like almost near constant pain. Um, he bounced around in kind of the food service industry as a cook, as a dishwasher, and then at age 18, he became a follower of Jesus, and he few years later, joined a local monastery. And even though he was very sincere about his faith, very, very dedicated, prayer was one of those things that just did not make sense to him, at least not in the kind of formal ways that the monks taught him to pray there. It was like, what am I supposed to be doing in this time? Like, why am I closing my eyes? 
how is God going to hear me? And, and what difference does it make? And so he was just kind of burdened by these questions in prayer, and, and at least like in the way that he was taught, it just never really seemed to help him. And so one day, he decided to do something different, and he began to approach throughout the day what he called a habitual, silent, and secret conversation of the soul with God. And so instead of you know, reciting these formal liturgies that the other monks were doing, when he would gather with them during the set hours of prayer, he was doing something else altogether. He, he would pray while he was preparing food. He would pray while he was welcoming others in, while he was checking in on the garden, while he was doing inventory of all the supplies that they had in the kitchen, while he was watching uh, you know, uh, the, the, the children in the nearby village play out, while he was walking around and just, just enjoying the beauty of, of creation. Wherever he was, he would treat that as an invitation to be in conversation with God. And over time, this began to change him. He went from being kind of a, 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 a clumsy and self-conscious guy in the back of the kitchen to being somebody who was a calm presence and a joyful presence. And before long, people from all over Europe went to Paris to see this monk who was beaming with the joy and peace of God sitting in the back of a kitchen. And they would you know, they'd come to this guy who was not accomplished, he was not educated, he, he did not have, you know, anything spectacular by any worldly standards. And they would come to him, and they would ask him for prayer, and they would ask him to pray for them and, and seek his advice about how they could have what he had. Because his whole life and his whole presence was kind of grounded in the reality of God's nearness. Came to be known better as Brother Lawrence, and when he died in the 17th century, the abbot of the monastery that he was in went around and collecting all of the various conversations that he'd had with people and, and the letters that he wrote in response to people asking him to teach them how to pray and put it together in a book called Practicing the Presence of God. And when I read this for the first time, what struck me is so powerful is that he saw that every single moment in life was present and powerful with God at the center of it. It, was, it meant that everything that he did, every moment could be filled with meaning. And over time, through this growing awareness of God's nearness, every task came for him a, a tangible opportunity to love God and to love others. It's kind of a, a prayer that was woven into the everyday rhythms of life, and he sums it up like this. The, the time of busyness does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clutter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in his great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacraments. I love that. I mean, what would it look like to begin every day grounded in an awareness of God's presence. How would that change the rest of your day? We've oriented our, our ministry here at All Souls around what the Spirit does in the church and gathering us together to, to be with one another and to be with Jesus. And then 
building us up to be shaped into the image of Jesus before sending us out to bear that image into the world. And it's not like a, a linear process, but there's definitely a flow to it. And it's a flow that we see all throughout the life of Jesus that he would, he would regularly withdraw to be with the Father. And he would then go out from that place for the sake of the world. If you look at his life, all of his doing flowed from his being with God. And so the very first thing that he calls his disciples to is to come and be with him. To learn his life by taking on his lifestyle. And those times of being with God are the foundation for his life. And they're the foundation for our lives. They are what enable us to be with and for others, which is the calling of everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. And you know, the more, the more I, 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 older I get, um, I've just come to kind of a, a appreciate how complicated and how complex life is. Uh, discipleship, I think, in this particular cultural moment with, with all kinds of uh, contentious space, be that in media, in politics, even in the, in the church, but with all that, the most important thing is very simple. And it's wake up, and, and the first thing in the morning, get your whole person in the presence of God and do everything in your power in partnership with the Spirit to live out of that space. And when you're distracted, you just have an invitation to come back and keep coming back and keep coming back. This is what we see in the life of Jesus. He would pull away from the Father. And it wasn't for him like this, this, this space that existed in, in a physical place. It was a space that he carried with him wherever he went. His whole being was soaked in the reality of being with God. And for him, that was the ultimate source of joy. Like there was no like separating point between abiding and experiencing joy. We live in a city, in a, in, a, in, a, in a culture that chases after joy in all kinds of ways. You know, it's like, whether it's the next restaurant to open up or the next social project or the next, uh, you know, addition to build on the house or the next virtuous crusade to, to champion or, or whatever it is. But for Jesus and for Paul, like, joy wasn't something that was out there. It was something in here. It wasn't in hanging on whether they, you know, whether you have more money or whether you have a nice house or whether you've got more stamps on your passport than the next person or whether you've got the best fire pit in all of, you know, all of Oakhurst or whatever it is or, or a promotion or however many, you know, followers on social media you have or whatever your thing might be. Joy isn't out there. It's, it's in here. It's not a new relationship status. It's, it's not a new job title at work. And sometimes, like, don't get me wrong, like, uh, those are good things. Uh, sometimes you need a promotion. It's just don't pin your happiness on that. Because you actually need very little to tap into joy. There's this undercurrent running below the distractions of our minds and the disordered desires of our hearts of love and joy, and peace, and it is a byproduct of life in the Spirit. All we have to do is slow down long enough to experience it. It's hard to do that. It's hard to enter that space of conscious awareness of God w without the presence of each other. 
And it's hard to do that without changing our habits. We live at this absolutely crazy pace. And I, I know I can get up on a soapbox about this. I know. <laughs> but it's, it's so easy for a life of hurry to just kind of sweep the, the rug right out from underneath a life of abiding in God. And so like so many things, prayer comes down to a matter of your schedule. Uh, some of you think about that continuum that I showed earlier, you know, of all the, the different poles, and you're like, ah, oh, well, if it's scheduled, then it can't be authentic. It, like, it can't be real. It can't be something that really does anything to me because it's just like some sort of like rote thing or some ritual thing that I'm engaging in. It's not something that transforms you. But you got to be spontaneous as well as structured. You can't have one without the other. I mean, sometimes you can have a spontaneous date night with your spouse, right? Um, a lot of times you got to schedule it in, though, or else it ain't going to happen. Uh, if you only do the one over the other, your relationship is going to suffer. If I was only ever spontaneous with Jill, um, only ever, like, you know, talked to her when, like, I had this great moment of inspiration, I wouldn't talk to her a whole lot, and I'd suffer, and she'd suffer and our relationship would suffer and I'd be in trouble and all that. On the other hand, if like I only ever spoke to her in like formal communication, you know, writing a, a long letter or a decree expressing my affection and my love toward her, uh, our relationship would be in trouble and I would, you know, be in trouble. Common theme here is that I'm in trouble with you, I guess. <laughs> The point is you need both flexibility and you need formality. You need structure and spontaneity. And you're naturally going to incline to one space over the other. But these things are, are not opposites. They're like inhaling and exhaling. You cannot go throughout life just holding your breath. You've got to, to breathe in and breathe out. And it turns out we are way happier when our schedule actually aligns with our values. So if you come to believe Jesus' claims about the, the deep you know, soul level of joy that we crave, it's going to have to affect your schedule and it's going to be found in prayer. And prayer is going to be something that you value. It's going to dictate what goes on your calendar so that you can be shaped like him for the sake of the world. It can be spontaneous, but it's also got to dictate your schedule. I mean, think about your morning routine. Think about how you do your budget. Think about your relationship that you have with your phone. How are you arranging your time to be in conscious awareness of God's presence? Right, so how do we move to this, you know, I've got a, a, a deadline and uh, a cat to walk and a, a, cat, a, cat, to, a cat to feed. <laughs> Try walking your cat, sure, go for it. Be that person. <laughs> I've got, I've got, you know, Instagram to scroll through. I've got, you know, candy that's not going to crush itself, right? I've got dishes to wash. I've got a lawn to mow. I've got, you know, Netflix to catch up on, a neighbor to invite over to dinner. I've got a gift to get for my kid's teacher for Teacher Appreciation Week. And, and, and how do you get from there to Brother Lawrence in the back of the kitchen at ease, chilling in the kingdom of heaven, ladling soup, and just being non-anxious about anything? Is there a practice from the way of Jesus that will help us get a rhythm of prayer into our lives to keep God's presence always before us? Yes, and I'm going to finish with this. One of them is known as fixed hour prayer, also known as the daily office, which is not Michael Scott memes in your inbox. It's not that. 
or it's also called the liturgy of the hours. And at heart, it is this intentional practice of stopping and reflecting on Scripture three times a day, morning, noon, and night. For this period of time, it could be whatever time you have. It could be 10 minutes, it can be five minutes, it can be 10 seconds, it can be an hour. Do whatever you can to stop and kind of ground your life, center your heart and your mind on God through silence, through Scripture. To take some time out of the hectic pace of your life and be in God's presence. It's kind of like a mini Sabbath in the middle of the day. And it's a practice that has been around for a long, long time. In fact, it goes back to way, well before Jesus. Uh, in Psalm 19, 119, David writes this, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. And in that short little phrase, he's just giving name to what was a common practice of, of the Hebrew people forever, of stopping and, and being with God. In Jan, Daniel chapter 6, uh, if you remember the story, Daniel uh, and the lion's den, right? Remember that one from, from Sunday school? Why did Daniel get thrown in the lion's den? Because he wouldn't stop this practice of praying to his God three times a day. All throughout the Bible and the history of the church, we, we see this kind of pattern of people arranging their life uh, three to seven times a day. Uh, you know, Paul and, and, uh, or Peter has this vision in Acts chapter 10 while he's at midday prayer. And, and it's not for them just about like taking this moment of being in God's presence, but it's allowing that moment to shape their awareness of God's presence all throughout the day. And the essence of this practice is to stop whatever you're doing, to just be with God. And I'm convinced that in like a culture addicted to hurry and productivity, like this is like the most punk rock act of rebellion that we can do. Stop and pray, right? It's a reminder that all of life is an unfinished symphony, that there is more out there than you can possibly do, and it's an invitation to embrace the gift of your limits, that you are a finite creature. You are not gonna drink all of the beers on tap at three taverns. You can try. Not in one sitting. I don't recommend that at all. But then it's this time of just after that to, to center the mind, to, to wait on him, to know that he is God, to let go of the tensions and the distractions that you're facing and bring the mind back to God. And then in silence and in scripture, let these words form your prayers. I want you to notice in another, something in another psalm where we see this pattern of stopping at, at times to pray. Evening, morning, and noon, David writes. I cry out in my distress, and God hears my voice. I don't want you to get to think that this idea is just of like, you know, mindfulness, of calmly mulling over some beautiful prayer from like the book of, Com I mean, that's great, do that for sure. But David in this time, he is crying out in distress. I am convinced that a major block that we have in prayer is that we don't actually pray. We, we come to God and we say things that we think we should be thinking to God and we say things that we think we should be feeling to God and we offer those up and we call them prayer. But here's the thing. God will not transform the person you are pretending to be. God will only transform the person where you are. 
Life comes in prayer when you stop praying where you think you should be and you start praying where you really are. And it takes time. That's why it is called a practice. You offer God both your thanks and your pain, your joy and your gratitude, your anger and your distress, and you bring these to God. You bring them what is really in you, not what you think ought to be in you. As Hannah said last week, and so, so grateful, Hannah, the Psalms are full of, of doubts and fears. Over a third of them are Psalms of lament. Whatever you are experiencing, bringing that to God in prayer. And so the invitation for this week is to engage in fixed hour prayer, to bring whatever it is in you to God. And this is not a command. There's no command anywhere in the Bible to do this three times a day. There's no compulsion we're going to be here and we're going to be praying whether anyone joins us or not. It's just an invitation. There are lots of ways to do this. You can find some descriptions of it in the community guide, but maybe the most basic way for most of us is to just first thing in the morning to read a psalm and reflect on it for a moment and, and pick a word or phrase from that psalm to just kind of mull it over and repeat in your mind throughout the day. And then at noon, when you're on your lunch break, to, to stop and pray the Lord's Prayer and to think over the events that are going on in the world. And ask yourself the question of, God, what would it look like for the kingdom to come in the midst of my next meeting, or the midst of my next sales call, or in the interaction I have with my coworker, or when I'm in the carpool line, what would it look like for your kingdom to come in this place? And then to end the day by just praying through what has happened in the day to let that set the course for your next morning. If you're up for it, we are going to be here at the church this week. Mike is going to lead us in daily prayer uh, every day at 12 o'clock. To be honest, like, Mike would do this, like, for the rest of his life every single day. This is kind of his jam. Like, it's his love language to be in prayer and leading people in morning and afternoon prayer. So, come and, and Mike will be here and some of us on staff will be here. But I want to end with this. Like a number of years ago, I was in a place where, where ministry was going fine. I'd just come through this really rough season. And in that season, which was, which was really hard, I rediscovered the spiritual disciplines. And I'd known about them before. I'd kind of dabbled in them here and there. But this, it was the first time that I'd really kind of set them aside and let them kind of be a pattern for how I related to God throughout the day. I, I carved out time for silence, for prayer, for, for solitude. I got back in the habit of journaling my prayers to God. I, in the mornings uh, and, and then on Tuesdays, I would fast because it was my hardest day of the week. I had this one meeting that just was like death to me. So I thought, why not add hangry to the mix? Um, I don't, it's not smart. I don't know what I was thinking, but it's what I did anyway. And you know, and then at the nighttime, I, I would do some, some, some praying and some, some reading. And so I'd let the, the morning set the rhythm for the day, the evening set the rhythm for the morning. But I, I began to notice that something would happen. I'd start off my morning, like, in a pretty good place, uh, centered, you know, have this psalm kind of fresh in my mind. Then around 1130, I started to get a little cranky. Whatever sort of spirituality or, or you know, time with Jesus that had rubbed off me in the morning had pretty well kind of worn out by that point. And then I'd come home and I'd just kind of still leak frustration all over my family. 
And so a couple of things happened. I, I started to use my lunch break three times a week to just walk around the neighborhood that our church was sitting in. And I would just you know, pray for the houses, people I didn't know who lived there, but it didn't really matter. And just kind of recite a line from that morning psalm. And then the second thing that would happen at the end of the day before going home, I would post up at Pete's Coffee about um, halfway between the office uh, and, and our, our house. And I would just sit there for about 30 to 45 minutes and reflect on the day. Like, where did God's presence seem real to me in that day? Where was God, uh, where was I aware of God's nearness in the day? And where were some really hard things or some emotions that I had that were frustrating me? And how could I surrender those back to God? And then I'd, you know, kind of go home. And uh, it took some sacrifice. I mean, I came home like, 15 to 30 to 45 minutes later. Um, but over time, I began to come home just differently. And I wasn't, you know, uh, leaking as much frustration all over the family. Don't take my word for it. You can ask Jill um, if you don't believe me. I learned that if I was going to love my family well, if I was going to serve my church well, I was going to need to stop and arrange my day differently, morning, noon, and night just in this awareness of God's presence and see prayer as kind of a, a rhythm for my soul to abide in Jesus for my sake and for the sake of others. It was really strange, and I've had to find a new rhythm kind of at the space of life where we were working from home. I didn't have a coffee shop to go to. I didn't have anywhere to go to. I was at home. And so my, my biggest struggle for a while was finding a new rhythm. But that's the invitation for this week, to find a rhythm of being with God each day. Paul finishes out his note uh, with, after this call to pray continuously with this. And this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. That's the promise, is that this is not about us. God will do it. God does the heavy lifting in our being with him. It is not so much, this call to pray without ceasing is not so much about our ability to do something as it is about God's nearness and promise to be with us in each moment of the day. And I think so often when we think about God's will, we think about the big things, you know, like, do I take this job or that job? Do I live in this city or that city? You know, do I have kids now? Do I have kids later? You know, what is God's will for my life? We think it's all about the big things, you know, how do I know God's will? But what Paul is getting at here is that you already know it. Rejoice always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Maybe the biggest things in our lives aren't the biggest decisions, the things that we think are going to shape the trajectory of the next five to ten years of our life. Maybe it's not the big decisions that always kind of loom in the background, but it's the thousand little ways, the thousand little decisions that we make every single day to either turn and orient ourselves to God or not, to be open to God's presence toward us, or not.
So that is the invitation. Find a rhythm of having God's presence always before you and arrange your life around that. We do this as individuals. We do this as a community in all kinds of ways. And one of them is engaging in this regular rhythm of each week coming to this table to see how in this bread and in this cup, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is present with us in this meal. That somehow in some mystery, God is with us, reminding us of his grace, sustaining us for the days ahead.